0: Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. He was a little worried today because he did legs yesterday and he didn't know if he had the energy. He was hydrating backstage. Luke chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus telling the story. We call it the prodigal son, which is uh, unfortunate because we never use the word prodigal in our world anymore. So let's call it the rebellious son. There's daddy had two sons, older son, younger son. Younger son, kind of full of himself, wants to go out on his own. So goes to dad and says, can you give him my inheritance early before you die? Which is kind of insulting, of course. But the dad, for whatever reason, decides to go ahead and do it and gives the boy you know, whatever money was due to him at his death. And uh, the kid just goes out and immediately wastes everything. He spends it on fast women and cars and booze and all that other stuff. You know, typical wastrel. Um, And as soon as he's out of money, he's out of friends, and so he can't find work. He finally finds work in Jesus' story on a pig farm, which if you're a Jewish boy, that's about as low as he gets, working on a pig farm, right? And he's starving to death. He's, You know, the pigs are eating better than him. And then Jesus in that story makes this statement in verse seventeen. It says, "But when he came to his senses," and that's an interesting expression. It means literally to come to yourself. Um, it would—it's—it's it's the idea of coming out of a coma. The structure is that way. It's—it's it's like you know, if, if I'm fighting Mike Tyson and you know, he hits me with a right, and I'm face down on the canvas and totally out of it. And, you know, everybody's clearing the arena and I finally wake up. I've come to myself. I've come to, I've, I've come back from the dead. I've, I've woke up. And that's the idea. You know, the prodigal in that moment, he comes to himself. He, he comes to And when he comes to himself, he has this moment of clarity in my father's house. The hired servants live better than me. I'm going to go home to my dad and say, Dad, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but let me be your servant. And, you know, then the rest of the story, as he comes home, the father runs to him, and it's a beautiful story of grace and healing. But I thought about that story when I came to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. So let's take our Bibles out. Let's uh, turn our devices on. Let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, because in chapter 7, Solomon comes to himself. This is a a wake up moment for him. Prior to this, everything's been a downbeat. Solomon's whole focus has been life under the sun and everything is dismal and morose and, you know, vanity of vanities, meaningless, meaningless. But in chapter seven, he wakes up and the language changes. The word vanity or vanities occurs 25 times prior to chapter seven. But after chapter seven, it only shows up eight times. And the word wise and wisdom appears almost 35 times in the latter part of this journal. And we also see a, a return to a familiar teaching method proverbial couplets couplets were a teaching device that was used uh, really prior to the written word so that things would be memorable and they're easily memorized, kind of like tweets today, you know, and you can pick up these nuggets of truth and they were simple, they were memorable, and there was always a good takeaway from it. And Solomon used that method Probably more than anybody, the book of Proverbs is basically a book of couplets. And in couplets, you have a variety of types of couplets. You have comparative couplets, which one idea is compared to another. You have completive couplets. Uh, one idea completes the idea that was begun. So it's two little statements that are linked in some way. And, and in this case, in Ecclesiastes, they're called contrasting couplets uh, because he uses the word that, that would uh, indicate that they were different from one another. But unlike the couplets of Proverbs, which were straightforward and hopeful, the proverbial couplets are the kind that you'll see on a coffee mug or on some wall art somewhere. These couplets come with, a, with an edge. There's a bite to them, and they force you to sort of think beyond the obvious and to look at them more deeply. But when you carefully look at them, you notice the biggest change of all that's happening in Solomon's mind, and that is a different perspective on suffering. You see, prior to chapter seven, Solomon was looking at suffering like a natural man. And he would look at life and life on the planet, and he would say, You know, here's a guy who has everything, but he's miserable. Um, Here's a good guy who's died young. Here's a wicked man who's lived a long life. And all of that. Natural approach to suffering has led him deeper into a, a point of despair where he just, you know, comes away growing darker and darker and darker, much like our time today, uh, because that's, that's the worldview of our time. Uh, postmodernism, uh, nihilism is the idea that everything's just kind of dark and there's no real point or meaningless to any meaning to anything. And, and what they're doing is they're looking at the world. And let me just say the world is full of suffering. And when they see that suffering and, and they're looking at it under the sun on a totally earthly perspective, they say, it's all pointless. There's no, there's no meaning. it. years ago, Francis Schaeffer uh, said that uh, humanism always ultimately leads to despair. And he was absolutely right in that because in humanism, you take away the spiritual worldview and there is no point to life. Just do the best you can because one day you're going to die. Life's a drag and then you die. That's kind of the message of the first six chapters of Ecclesiastes. But in seven He looks up, and suddenly faith is introduced again to the concept of suffering, and in these couplets we see uh, a man who's wrestling with the beautiful side of suffering. And so let's start with this couplets to understand the benefits of suffering. Chapter 7, verse 1, he says, a good name is better than a good ointment. (laughs) I laughed when I read that because I remember Proverbs. He says, a good name is better than treasure. And I thought, you know, that's so, that's so characteristic. A young man who's after treasure, so a good name, he has to remind himself, my name is more important than my treasure. But an old man, a good name is better than ointment because in, in, in youth, you're looking for treasure. And in old age, you're just looking for a good skin cream, right? <laughs> in this case, the word means perfume. And he's saying that it's, it's better to, to be good than to smell good. A good name is reflective of your character. It's who you are. It's what other people understand about you. People know that they can count on you. They know they can trust you. In other words, it's more important to be good than to look good. It's not about image. It's not about how you smell. It's about who you really are at the end of the day and that other people can really bear down on you and they can trust in you. They can put their weight on you because they know that you're going to be always who you profess to be. And man, what a refreshing word for our time when we see so much pretense and hypocrisy and image consciousness and so little real deep character. And and it leaves us with this sense of who do I trust? I mean, you look at uh, society and celebrities and all of that. You go, who who there can I really trust? Can I trust their word? You look at the political system, and you go, who can I? That's the great question of our day is, who can we trust? I can't trust what I read on the internet. I can't trust what I hear from the news. Where do do I go? And and he says, in this case, you be the kind of person that people can trust. A good name. Spend your life building your name, not trying to be some sort of fresh smell. Don't, Don't worry about looking good, be good. That one makes sense, but watch what he adds to this. The end is better than the beginning, verse one again, and there's that conjunction. In this case, it's a contrasting couplet that also works as a completive couplet. A good name and ointment, that's contrasting, it's better than, there's the contrasting word. But in this case, he has the word and, so he's gonna add a couplet to to add on to it, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. And I'm like, wait, what? I read that. I didn't get it. Truthfully, it sounded like Solomon was falling back into the despair of Ecclesiastes 6. But that language doesn't fit here. There's a mood change. The voice has changed. And yet it has to fit because of what he just said. And it's it's connected through the conjunction and. You know, a good name is better than perfume and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. And so I, I backed away and I thought, what does this mean? Do I take this figuratively? I mean, does it mean the end of life validates what you did in life? It confirms your character. The day you were born, this you begin to struggle for legacy, but the day you die, our legacy is sealed and your work is completed and you are released from this growth process called sanctification. Is that what he means? There's a release in that? Do I take it literally? Uh Does he really mean that dying is better than birth? Because if you come at this literally, you've got to wind up back at Philippians chapter 1 where Paul is in prison in Rome and he's about to be tried by Nero. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. And he says to the Philippians, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So in that case, yeah, dying is better than living. If you think about this in terms of crown and cross, it begins to make sense. You know, in life, as a believer, we bear the cross of Christ, right? And we're daily dying to ourselves, and we're struggling and we're, we're trying to forge the, the image of Christ into, the, into our lives and into the community that we seek to reach. But when we die, the, cro- the cross is behind us and the crown is in front of us. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy when he's in prison again the second time right before he dies. And he said, in the future, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, And so, yeah, there's the idea that I'm released from the struggle of life. So in that case, the day of my death is better than the day of my birth because to live is Christ, to die is gain, right? That's literally. But what if we take it spiritually? Coming home to God is to die to yourself, right? Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, that means to die, and follow me. He said, if anybody wants to find his life, he's got to lose it. So is he speaking spiritually here that I have to die to live? So the day I die is better than the, is, is, is better than the day I was born because the day I die to myself is the day I really begin to live. Is that what he's talking about? I'm, I'm released from the need to earn God's approval through my performance. Let's just get clear on this. The wages of sin is death. The result of the paycheck for sin is, is death, and nothing you ever do will make up or atone for that. All the good you'll ever do won't make up for one sin you ever did. The Bible says when we sin, we come under judgment. And so we spend our lives wrestling with guilt and shame and trying to somehow uh, atone for the, the sin that's, that that's been committed. And yet the day we come to the point where we go, you know what? I can't do that. I can't make up for my sin. There's nothing I can do that'll get sin off my hands. In that moment, I died to self. And, and in that moment, I received the grace of Jesus Christ poured out on the cross. And in that moment, I really begin to live because my sins are forgiven. My past is forgotten and my eternity is secured. You got it? And so maybe it's a spiritual thing. I'm released from the need to earn God's approval. To be honest, I, I think it probably meant all of those things. But I think the key here and what he's really getting at is release. The key is release. He's twisting back on the words that he had written in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, where he said the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. In that case, he meant, I wish I was dead. That's what he meant in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 1. I wish I was dead because he was looking at all of the oppression and all of the pointlessness and purposelessness and meaninglessness of life. And he was in despair. Look at uh, Ecclesiastes 4.1. Again, I observed all the oppression that takes place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed which no one with no one to comfort them. The oppressors have great power and their victims are helpless. And that's when he said, it's better to die than live. But this time it's different. Death isn't better because it would keep you from the pain. Death isn't better because you're so sick of all the suffering in the world. Death is better because it releases you from the struggle. In that moment where I come to myself and I say, I got to die to all this stuff. I don't have the answers for all this stuff. Cease striving, the Bible says, and know that I'm God. And I'm released from the need to control the world. And I don't have to have all the answers anymore. Look at what he says. Morning's better than feasting. Verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Again, this makes no sense to the superficial mind because parties are always better than emergency rooms. Of course, a lot of parties wind up in the emergency room, right? But, uh, you know, who doesn't rather want to go to a house of feasting? Who wouldn't rather go to a wedding than a funeral? Well, I'll tell you, a lot of pastors I know, and and this is a closely guarded pastoral secret, I'm a little nervous to let this out, but a lot of pastors, in fact, I would venture to say most pastors, um, every pastor I've ever talked to would rather do a funeral than a wedding. You're like, why? Weddings are happy times. Funerals are sad. Why, Why would that be? And there is such joy in seeing couples come together and love and all that. But from a pastor's perspective, how do I say this? There's a lot of really stressed out people at weddings and most of them are female. I I don't, I know that sounds sexist. I'm sorry, but it is kind of a, it's, it's her world. She's been dreaming of this since she was, and she's going to get it right. And, uh, there's some tension because some of them may have some ideas about some songs or what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. And there's a struggle there to sort of work through all that and 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 then as, you know, as a pastor, you're not really necessary. Uh, at least in their minds it's really more about photographs and cakes and all that stuff, uh, which I, I often say, "Hey, look, weddings are 20 grand now. Did y'all know that? 30 grand." And I'm like, "The only part that's really necessary is me, and I'm free." I can do that wedding in five minutes in my office and we're good to go. And then the honeymoon starts. That won't work. I can promise you that won't work. And here's the biggest part as a pastor all you can really do is mess up. Like, they're not going to remember if you do everything perfectly, they're only going to remember what you did wrong. For example, I just did my third son's, my sec, my third son's wedding. Third son's wedding. Matthew and Trez got married. It was a beautiful wedding. And we'd prayed for this wedding, and Trez is perfect for Matthew, and he's perfect for her. And it was just such a beautiful wedding. And and everything just went so well, and everybody was so easy to work with. and... It was just a celebrative moment. And then we came to the very end. It's called the presentation. And that's where, as a pastor, you say, Turn and, turn and face the audience. Get your bouquet, turn and face the audience. We're going to present you. May I be the first one anywhere, anytime to present? And normally I would say, Mr. and Mrs. Matthew Die. Only in this case, I said, Mr. and Mrs. Andrew Die. Yeah. Only it was Matthew getting married. And there was a it was like the life got sucked out of the room. It was like there was like a did he is is he kidding? And then there was a roar. I've actually got a photograph taken the moment I said it. Watch this. Look. That's the men on the stage. Notice Chase. You know, the Bible says love covers. They did nothing to help cover. Look at Micah. Look at Micah. He's helping. And Xavier over there in the corner, he's a big help. I'm looking for a rock to crawl under. <laughs> so, so, at a wedding, all we can do is mess up. But at a funeral, man, they're just glad you're there. And they're different. Almost anything is helpful. Just being there. Just caring. You don't have to say the right thing. You don't really have to say anything. Just be there. And, and, and people are serious. They're thinking of deeper things. And that's his point. Look at verse two, because that is the end of every man, the house of mourning. And the living take it to heart. Funerals remind us that our days are numbered and time is limited. It's like that old Tim McGraw song, I want to live like I was dying, because all of a sudden we're faced with our own mortality. and we got to make the most of life. Then he says, brokenness is better than false happiness. Sorrow is better than laughter, adding to the same idea. For when the face is sad, a heart may be happy. He's focusing on the healing power of sadness here. In fact, I think all of this is pointing to the benefit of pain. Solomon's gone through all this pain and now he's seeing how clearly how beneficial it can be. And it's changing his thinking. Look at verse four. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. And it's so easy to become so consumed with constant entertainment that we never allow ourselves a moment of boredom or a moment of reflection or a moment of pain. I mean, the minute something happens, you got two seconds between uh, some event, you pull out the cell phone and start entertaining yourself to death. Or if things get too hard, you want to go to the game system and turn it on and just veg out until the whole world kind of goes away for a while. Or let's go to a movie. Let's let's distract ourselves. And it's easy to do that. You know, I was at a movie years ago. This actually happened years ago. Uh, We hadn't been here long. We went to the movie over at the mall. And, you know, it, doesn't have the, it didn't have the stadium seating at that time. I don't know what it has now. And so you're kind of down, you're looking up, it's tight, a little claustrophobic, and uh, the rows are kind of long, and and it was some kid's movie, and we had the whole gang there, and they're all lined up. And on our, our deal, there were two chairs that were left at the end of our row against the wall, and this lady comes in, and she's got a two-year-old, and she looks at it, and she goes, oh, let's sit there, you know, so she's. Moving past, she's got her two-year-old. And then we look up and there's three kids following them. So it's not two, it's five in two seats. And they go down and she said, the two-year-old can sit with me and then you sit beside me and then those two can share that seat. And so we're like, oh, here we go. And so it's going to get loud, and it's going to be rowdy. And sure enough, they're talking a lot, and they're kind of back and forth a lot. And we're like, that's fine. It's a kid's movie. The whole place is kind of like a can of worms. And so the, the movie finally gets going, and, and, it, and it's one of these kids' movies, but something happens. Like, there's a heroine in the movie. It's supposed to be a kid-friendly movie, but the heroine dies. It was, it was kind of a shock to me. I, I think it was an animated movie, but the heroine dies. and there's, And it's kind of a gasp. Well that little two year- old starts crying and the gran- the grandma is trying to console her and she's like, honey she didn't really die she'll be back later and the two year old's like not, not buying that at all that 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 she died she died and she's crying loudly and now her, her sisters are crying and everybody's crying at the end and and you know, I'm thinking, wow, that's really bad. I mean, we kind of got hit by that one. But, you know, we sort of muscle on and, and uh, it never stops. They're crying more and the crying's getting louder. And I'm like, come on now. I mean, you know, I, I know you're a two-year-old girl, but man up, right? <laughs> it's a movie I don't care about, but I want to know what happens. You know, it's weird what we get annoyed by. But she's still crying and she's still kind of doing her thing. And then finally, grandma says, do you want to go? Do you want to go? And she's like, yeah, I want to go. And so they, instead of like, hey, we need to leave. Could y'all help us? They, they just start going. And we're like, try, and they're trying to get through. And, we're try, and I'm like, this is all a little much. I'm not super annoyed. I'm just kind of, this is a lie. And when the grandma gets to me, she bends over and she said, I am so sorry. But her daddy was killed this week. He works offshore and one of those big things fell on him. And all of a sudden, perspective came. The little girl's inconsolable. Her big sister's weeping. And man, my heart was just bright. I learned two things. Here they are, two quick thoughts. We never know what other people are carrying. And second, the truth of pain brings clarity. Suddenly, my annoyance at a movie that I didn't even care about became pretty irrelevant and petty, didn't it? And truth entered the room. You know, suffering is sobering. C.S. Lewis said this, pain plants the flag of truth within the rebel fortress. Maybe that's why we avoid it so much. Then the last set of couplets, I just sort of gathered this all together. Maturity is better than immaturity. It's, it's, he basically talks about, hey, we just got to be adults. And, and this is hard for some people. They, they, they don't like this adulting thing. But look what he says, adults, grownups have to hear hard things. Verse 5, it's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. In other words, sometimes it's better to hear hard things than pleasant things, and sometimes you've got to hear hard things, and sometimes you've got to say hard things, and that's what mature people do. Grownups have to deal with hard stuff. Mature people deal with hard things, for oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. Grown ups are dialed into this and it frustrates them and it makes them mad, but they have to deal with it. And they have to endure to the end. Verse 8, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. I don't have the freedom to just abandon the responsibility. I got to stay in it. I got to keep doing it. I got to do the hard things until it's finished. Immaturity says, I'm going to run from this problem. Maturity says, I'm going to face it head on. And and all of a sudden I'm, I'm hearing this from Solomon and Solomon is preaching to himself because these are the very things that he was doing. He was running. He was running to women, to, to, to drugs, to uh, material addictions, to uh, experiences, and even into books. And he's running everywhere to try to get away from the meaninglessness of his life. And he finally realized this is something mature people just muscle through. So here's his conclusions, okay? Conclusions to understand the beautiful side of suffering. The first is compose yourself. Keep your cool. Verse nine, do not be eager in your heart to be angry for anger resides in the bosom of fools. What's the first thing people do when life doesn't go their way? They freak out. Why is God letting this happen? Why would God do this to me? That's what Solomon was doing. And the more he asked that question, the more despair came into his world. Because it's too complicated to answer, there's too many possibilities. Sometimes people are bad and they hurt you. You're like, well, why did God let bad people hurt me? Well, the same God that let you choose right lets them choose wrong. You see, if you have a choice, you have to be able to choose the wrong choice as well as the right choice, or there wasn't really a choice. And God wants it, wants our love volitionally. He wants our love to be a choice. Like you can't know if somebody really loves you if they have to love you. If I have to be an automaton and I have to grow up and I've known from the beginning that I have to love you and I've never had any choice not to love you, is there ever real love in that? And so God desires our love to be volitional. But for my love to be volitional, I have to have the ability to choose not to love him. And there are people in this world, and a lot of them, who have chose not to love him. And they've chose to do the wrong thing rather than the right thing. Why did God allow that? Because he allows choice. It's part of the system. And sometimes bad people are going to make bad choices and parents are going to be irresponsible and they're going to leave little children on their own and they're going to hurt little children and dads are going to vanish from the home and moms are going to be irresponsible and and, and not take care of, of the business of taking care of the family and all of those things can happen. And then people can defraud you and steal your money and take your stuff or or uh, somebody can disappoint you and, and go off with another person and break a commitment to you. All of those things happen because of choice why God let it happen because he allows choice sometimes we make mistakes and hurt ourselves sometimes see my thumb my thumb is black that's not fingernail polish you know some guys have started painting their fingernails that's kind of freaking me out (laughs) this is because I smashed it and it bled under my thumb And, uh, you know, when that happened, let me tell you, there was some intense pain. In fact, the pain was so intense, and it grows over time when you smash a thumbnail, you got to somehow relieve the pressure. And so I had to stick an X-Acto knife in that joker and let it get out. It hurt a lot, but it got a lot better after that. That's how bad it hurt. Now, I could have gone, God, why did you let my thumb get hurt? My thumb did nothing to you, God. It was just being on my hand an opposing finger helping me. Why did you let my thumb get hurt? And God could say, well, maybe it was your fault, Bill. Maybe you had a drill driver on a three-inch screw and you were pressing too hard and it went sideways and the drill driver went right down on your thumb. And had you not done that, you wouldn't have a hurt thumb. Maybe some of the things we want to blame God for, we really can't. And sometimes it's the consequence of the fall. I mean, we live in a fallen world and there'll be tornadoes and hurricanes and sickness and disease and all those things that come with it. And sometimes we just don't know. Most of the time we don't know. And I don't have the luxury of freaking out about hurts and heartache. I don't have the luxury of just saying, why don't I know what your plan is in all of this, God? That's what Solomon, that's where he's come to. And then he says, don't get stuck in the past. Don't say, why is it that former days were better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask about this. You know, (laughs) everybody wants to go, well, this wouldn't happen if we were still in the 50s or the 60s in the good old days. And remember, everything was better in the past. And the older I get, the better I was. And, And, you know, one of those wonderful days, there weren't all these bad people. And it's like, oh, really, there weren't? Because, you know, it seems like there were. There was a lot of bad stuff in those days. And you can't. even if they were better, you can't go back. So you can't, you can't freak out. You can't try to live in the past. Here's what you do. You remember what you knew. He said, wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. Wisdom is protection just as money is protection. And there's a degree of truth in that. Money protects us in some ways, because we have the assets available to deal with the problems. When you have an unexpected problem with no assets, the problem is worse, right? He says, in the same way, wisdom helps to take care of us, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its possessors. And there's a proverb that says, a wise man foresees trouble and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. Wisdom is anticipating outcomes and adjusting for the potential outcomes. And so in some degree, there is wisdom in that. So don't forget the wisdom. That's why we pour the Word of God into our minds. That's why we become biblical in our thinking because the biblical thinker understands how wisdom protects himself. But ultimately, it comes down to this. you got to trust in the goodness of God. Verse 13, consider the work of God for who's able to straighten what he has bent. I love that. You know, sometimes God just allows you to get bent. I was thinking about my truck when I Lost control of the trailer and it just started hitting the back of my truck and bending my truck. And sometimes my life is like that truck, it just gets bent. And God's behind that. He lets us get bent. But the irony is here that by bending us, he makes us straight. That's the irony of it. We're back again to Romans 8:28, you know. You remember that one? Well, we know that God causes. All things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. It doesn't say all things are going to be good. It doesn't say you're going to miss the hard part. It says all things are going to work together for the good. God's going to cause that. He's going to take the hard things and the good things, and he's going to work them together for your good. Grady Nut said, all sunshine makes a desert and all rain makes a swamp. And God knows how to mix that up just appropriately. But what's the good we're talking about? We'll keep reading Romans 8, 29, 8, 28. He causes all things to work together for the good. Eight twenty nine says, for whom he foreknew these, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. God's desire is for you to look just like Jesus. But to get you to look just like Jesus, sometimes he's got to bend you a little. He's got to allow you to get bent because in getting bent, we're made straight. Look at verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be happy. Here we go. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man will not discover anything that will be after him. I have to trust that he knows best. And this is where Solomon finally lands, and this is what allows him to come to himself. He stopped looking at the hurts and the heartaches under the sun, and he allowed his focus to go over the sun. You see, here's the truth I know we all have hurts. We all have heartaches. I heard a guy one time say, if you'll preach to hurt, you'll always have an audience. And then he said, because there's a hurt on every, on every row. He said, there's a hurt on every pew. And, and the more I've been around people, the more I realize it's not a hurt on every pew. It's a hurt in every seat. I mean, there are hurts in every single life. Some of them are self-inflicted. Some of them are others inflicted. Some of them just happened. Some of you had a dad that abandoned your family. Some of you had a mate that abandoned and broke your heart. Some of you got a kid that broke your heart. Some of you are disappointed in your mom. Some of you moms have portrayed disappointment in your children. Some of you have job situations that are unstable, or you've lost your job, or you've been betrayed. Some of you are hearing terrible news health-wise, and you're struggling with the Consequences of that. Here's, here's another secret of pastoral life that we've all learned in dealing with people everybody's got to hurt. And there's a crisis going on in every home. And you can either look at that crisis and shake your fist at heaven, like Solomon was doing for six chapters. Of Ecclesia, This thing's written like a diary, and you get kind of what he was feeling in the moment as if he wrote it in a diary. And you can shake your fist at heaven and say, why is this all happening? Or you can back up and bow your head and close your eyes, and you can say, you know what, God? I don't understand it, but I understand that you love me, and I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to wait for the outcome you've promised. Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Here's the promise I have for you. No matter what you go through, you're going to go through some stuff. No matter what you go through, if you're in Christ, he's with you and you don't go through it alone. But you've got to trust him for that. You ready to do that? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the insight of Ecclesiastes 7 because, you know, we look at this world and uh, we hear another shooter report or we hear, you know, some horrible thing happening in someone's life and we turn from the news to the relationships that are nearby and it seems like there's always bad news coming from some quarter and everybody's dealing with something. There's an addiction. There's a broken home. There's a broken life. Father, we we wish we knew the answers to all of that. And, and there's something in us that wants to know. But when we back up and we reflect on faith, we realize we'll never know. And that's not for us to know. But we're going to trust you. Like that verse says, cease striving and know that I'm God. We're going we're to stop striving. We're going to just be still and know who you are. And I pray, Father, for those that are hurting right now, for those deep wounds that are in their life and those silent cries that maybe they've not told anybody else about. That right now, they would cry out to you and just say, God, be with me in this. Carry me. Help me to endure. Give me faith to continue to believe so that our lives become more and more like Jesus. And we thank you for that process. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.